Hi guys, welcome back on the Blockworks YouTube Macro channel. This is Alf speaking and today's guest is Mr. Blob Macro, who is the author of one of the best macro substack out there. It's free, by the way, it's called Stuck in the Middle and you should definitely subscribe. It's full of good content. He's a prolific contributor on Twitter as well. The, the handle is at Mr. Blob Macro, if I'm not mistaken. Hi, Mr. Blond. How are you doing? I'm great, Alpha. Thanks for having me. It's good to see you. It's a pleasure to, to have a chat with you every time. So I think what, we, what I want to start from is financial conditions because the subcomponents of that index, dollar, real yields, credit spreads, equity valuations, all of those are contributing to tighter financial conditions. And I know that they fit very well into your macro framework. So can you walk us through a bit what's going on there? So uh, you know, clearly financial conditions had already been in a tightening trend um, you know, from late last year, I think what's what's interesting recently is that that trend has accelerated um, or has moved at a quicker pace, particularly in the last few weeks, uh, driven you know primarily by you know real yields and the dollar. Uh, we we could talk about the different components of FCI um, if if that's interesting. Uh, but you know, I, I I do think it's important to think about the cumulative uh, effect of FCI tightening. Um, and the, the idea that the tightening is, is happening again at a quicker pace um, at a higher level of FCI, um, I think is an important, you know, it's important to acknowledge that and think about what that means for, for broad asset markets, as well as what that will likely mean for future growth, i.e. lower. Um, and just to you know, kind of put numbers to this, even before we were talking, before we got set up, I was looking at you using the Goldman Sachs Financial Conditions Index. I mean, the last 15 to 20 days has basically been the quickest pace of tightening that we've seen um, since the you know since the cycle started uh, late last year, I mean it's on par with what we saw uh, into mid-April as well as into mid-June, um, and you know at both points you know, represented important turning points uh, or you know weak points in, in markets. And that is important, Mr. Blond, because in your framework you both look at the momentum of tightening in financial conditions, which subcomponents are moving, but also the cumulative impact of this tighter financial condition. So can you walk us through a bit how that really? feeds into equity valuations, for example. Yeah, so I, I think, that, um, you know, obviously there's the relationship of, you know, a discount rate or, you know, cost of capital. And so that's an important one. It's both a, a combination of level of rates or, you know, um, treasury, you know, rates or you know, government rates um, and then credit spreads on top of that. So, I mean, in my valuation framework, I tend to rely more on uh, triple B corporate credit as a proxy for cost of capital rather than ten-year yields. Um, there's not a company in the in the world that can borrow at the the, the government rate. Um, but then I think the other aspects of FCI are important to consider too. I mean, I already mentioned credit spreads, but um, the dollar. I mean, the dollar you know has obviously made another you know kind of breakout move here, despite you know the persistent calls for the dollar's demise, you know twin deficits and you know central banks acting like EM central banks all this other you know stories that are they're talked about yet the currency um is not acting that way which i think is you know a, a function of a few things but that matters to uh equity markets as well because the dollar um, the transmission mechanism is that the dollar you know, usually results in weaker profit growth um, or more specifically weaker you know, sales growth and the translation effect from that. I mean, in the model that I use um, and have published, uh, you know, a 10% move in the trade weighted dollar that, that is you know, somewhat lasting or, or hangs around for a bit, you know, usually shaves 150 to 200 basis points of growth um, off of uh, next year's or you know or, or off of earnings growth over the course of the next six to twelve months, which is not immaterial when you when you think about 
um, you know, kind of a run rate of six to seven percent or seven to eight percent earnings growth on average. Now, this might be a dumb question, but for the audience especially, what is the mechanism for which a stronger dollar and a sustainably stronger dollar actually hits sales growth amongst U.S. companies? Yeah, I mean the the, the basic or the main issue is that you know roughly forty to fifty percent, you know, f- roughly forty percent of S and P five hundred revenue comes from overseas. Um, and you know, it's it's true. There, you know, some companies are going to be better at others that at hedging that FX exposure. Uh, but what you find, you know, and then I, what I would, but you know, what typically what happens is on average, um, the flow through to EPS is one hundred percent. You know, in that if your if your sales are have a, a two or three or five per, you know, or ten percent headwind, you know, that's going to kind of flow down to the bottom line. And you know, not to be too disparaging to the analyst community, but most of them are not forecasting that in their EPS yeah. uh, forecast. So, you know, FX is kind of considered an you know an exogenous you know, force. And so that, that's kind of the, the, the main effect. Um, I think there's also, you know, the associated effect of like, why is the dollar strengthening? I mean, usually the dollar is strengthening and, you know, we think of the, the dollar smile, usually strengthening an environment of weak global growth. Um, and so that's, um, I think that's another, you know, associated effect and, and how it, you know, flows through to valuation. But Mr. Blond, one uh, dissonance against the past right now is that a stronger dollar on slower global growth, um, and that happens mostly because you know there are a lot of levered um, foreign entities to the dollar that require strong growth to service their dollar liabilities. When when global growth slows down, there is a dash for cash dollars, of course, uh, to repair this balance sheet mismatch that it is structural and out there. But generally speaking, there was one component of the financial condition index that tended to help when this was the case, which was real yields. So real yields tend to reflect the monetary policy stance and long-term uh, real growth. And when real growth was slowing down and the monetary policy stance was supposed to be accommodative to rescue this slowing down of growth, you normally had real yields actually rally. But right now, we have real yields compounding the problem of tighter financial conditions and spiking up. So what's your take on real yields? How much is the Fed influencing those? And how do they reflect across sectors um, in the equity space? Yeah, I mean, this is probably a better question for you. So your um, your space, but and and I, w- I would definitely be interested in your perspective. I, look, I think, you know, clearly um, the Fed has sort of underscored. I think you know, particularly at the at Jackson Hole, their um, focus on you know kind of beating the inflation problem, um, and I think that that you know, certainly has served to um, result in a, another you know upswing in in real rates. Um, obviously, the the I guess when I think of real rates and 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 the dollar, these are not mutually exclusive. I mean, I think if one of the reasons that the dollar is strong is because U.S. real rates um, are outpacing uh, real rates in other parts of the world. I mean, you can you can look at a, a chart of you know five year real rates in the U.S. versus five year real rates in Japan, uh, and it looks just like JPY. So there's yeah. you know there's a, a lot of um, a lot of associated, you know, market movement. I, but you know, I, look, I think that's all part of what drives FCI. FCI is a function of uh, multiple um, markets, and so if if all of the FCI tightening was coming from, you know, had to come from real rates, and you didn't get the benefit of dollar strength, then real rates would need to be much higher than they are today, uh, you know, to 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 have the the appropriate impact. Um, what does it mean for for equity? I mean, obviously, as from a standpoint of the the discount rate factor, 
Um, if I think of this, you know, kind of simplistically, I say, well, if I can get, you know, one um, percent real rate, i.e., real risk-free rate, you know, adjusted for both duration, you know, you know, and inflation and whatnot, um, then that makes it a more attractive uh, source of return. Uh, when I, you know, when I kind of cross over and I look at, you know, where whether it's like triple B, you know, credit rates are or, or where you know equity earnings yield might be, and so that can be a big sucking sound from risky assets, you know, towards quote unquote safe assets. Yeah, that's one of the channels, right? I mean, one is the discounting factor of future cash flows that we discussed already. The other is simply the allocation of capital. When your risk-free inflation-adjusted alternative becomes more palatable, obviously marginal capital is going to flow towards that unless risk asset valuations adjust accordingly. So that's, right. that's what anecdotally happens as well in, in institutions and I can testify towards that behavior. Um, but um, I found very interesting, by the way, Mr. Blom, what Powell said at Jackson Hole on real yields. Uh, actually, he, he was pretty vocal for a couple of months, but markets was, weren't actually assigning a lot of weight to his words there when he said that he wanted to see real yields being positive across the curve. So you always had 10-year real yields in positive territory, 20, 30 years as well. But the front end was still in negative territory because they basically weren't pricing the Fed hawkish enough to be restrictive for long starting immediately now, but also keeping it for the next three to five years to basically bring inflation all the way down. And after the Jackson Hole speech, which I found very clear, pretty much unambiguous, the bond market has adjusted. And now, as you say, five-year real yields are actually, I think, the highest since 2018. And don't forget in 2018, Powell was saying stuff like, we are on autopilot, neutral rate is far away, we'll keep hiking. This was the, the kind of attitude he had back in 2018. So I think having real yields back there is a testament to the market being more serious about the Fed. But what's your take on uh, the Fed going forward? What do you think they'll be doing over the next three to six months? Respect forwards, do more on the QT end maybe? Give us a bit your download there. I think the Fed delivers the expected rate hikes over the course of the next couple meetings. I think that the, I think the debate really stems from what happens to the growth environment um, into, the, into fourth quarter. I mean, I, I have a you know, I think I have a more downbeat, you know, kind of negative growth view than the average um, investor, uh, particularly on the profit growth side. And I think profit growth ultimately determines a lot about, you know, what happens um, in in employment growth and capex growth and sort of other aspects. And so that's why I focus on profit growth. Um, I think I think growth has already shown signs of 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 weakness and strain, uh, maybe more so in other parts of. Uh, the world than it has in the U.S. I mean, I think the the data coming out of you know, Korea and Taiwan yeah. in particular, which are sort of you know, key early stage important you know global manufacturer and global trade hubs, um, looks looks pretty nasty. Um, so I think if the I think if if we get that sort of if we get that growth outcome into the fourth quarter, then I think that could change a little bit. You know, you know sp specifically what the Fed does, but I think um, as for now, I think they're you know, they're trying to play their hand in a way that suggests we're going to stay here until that happens. I, I, I guess one of the things that was important for me, and as you said, I think Powell is, had already alluded to this, but I think he underscored it at Jackson Hole, which is the Fed is expecting and anticipating and in some ways hoping growth will slow in order to do the, you know, inflation, inflation fighting you know, for them. I mean, that's yeah. kind of the, this is the don't fight the Fed mantra. This is where it comes from. Um, 
And I think that to me, that says that the Fed is willing or will be more willing to, you know, accept, quote unquote, pain to households uh, than it has been in the past. I mean, I don't know what your interpretation is, but my interpretation of pain to households was code word for we're expecting a recession. I mean, I know that it's, you know, kind of not characteristic for central banks to talk that way, um, but that seemed to be pretty close or as close as you get to a central bank saying, you know, unfortunately, we know that this means, um, you know, a recession-like outcome. And then he followed that with, you know, needing growth to be below trend uh, for, you know, some extended period of time uh, in order to um, satisfy this. So this seems, now maybe, so maybe they don't end up hiking a lot more. I think they deliver the hikes and then I think they're, but I think they're, their focus is to then stay there yeah. uh, probably for, for longer than, than most of us would have anticipated a few months ago. I also noticed the words that you highlighted here, Mr. Blond, the unfortunate costs uh, and pain to households, which in central bank's jargon, given my experience, mean that the probability of a recession is higher in the Fed's model than it was six months ago. And most importantly, those are unfortunate costs as, that the households will have to, to face and they won't deter them, let's say, from, from their hiking cycle. It's, it's interesting to see the bond market as well, uh, pricing a terminal rate, which is not vastly different than what it was before, 375% area. It's where it seems the bond market has made up its mind uh, the Fed funds will be at the highest point in this hiking cycle. But importantly, the bond market has now priced away cuts in 2023, because if the hurdle to cut rates is so high from the Federal Reserve, they're not even a recession, apparently in their own world today, it's going to lead them to cut rates. Why would you price any cuts? Although I know that you have a different view there because you, you always say that, I think you have a very interesting mantra, which was um, from Fed hikes, from inflation hikes to growth cuts or something like yeah. that. Can you walk us through? Yeah, no, I, I think that the, the concept or the, the narrative there is, I think is really about the, the, I don't know that at this stage or, you know, from a couple months ago when I said it, that anybody was, was really that surprised anymore about the Fed's you know, focus on tightening FCI and 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 raising raising rates. Um, I think that the focus now shifts to the consequence or the cost of of that policy of of fighting inflation and the cost of the Fed, you know, choosing to you know to go later and faster instead of you know earlier and slower, uh, as it you know as it you know in, in its own you know kind of transitory and all the other stuff that we talked about in twenty twenty one, and so now the cost associated with that is. Um, you know, growth recession, right? Whether that means like an actual NBER defined recession, or you just have a, a pro profit recession, or you have pockets of negative or really weak growth in, in some areas, I think is um, beside the point for, for markets. Um, and I think that, you know, that's, that's where the, sh the focus shifts. And hey, we've already seen it in some pockets. I mean, you've been, you know, upfront and, and, and um, forward about, you know, sort of your core flattening, uh, we can, you know, we can see it in internal measures of of the equity market through cyclicals, defensives, uh, increasingly seeing, I think, it play out in commodity markets. I mean, all assets that are um, sensitive to the the growth factor. Yeah. So when it comes to what are the implications for the equity market, because I think a lot of people are basically just waiting for me to ask this question now to Mr. Blondis. Can you give us? your assessment and your base case scenario for the U.S. equity markets going forward after all the macro uh, picture that you just highlighted and also some sector analysis because you have been very vocal, for instance, on transportation or on, on home builders at the beginning of the year. You were very bearish there. So can you give us as well a sectoral overlook? Yeah. So I, I think for the market, um, 
I guess like what, you know, where I, you know, I, I do think that we've, we've gone through some important, you know, phases or transitions this year. Like I, I would say we started 22, 2022 with the idea that of we had, you know, peak liquidity, peak valuations on peak earnings. And that's a pretty tough, you know, um, starting point. Yeah. I do think that on peak liquidity and peak valuations, we've made good progress, meaning the market has done a, a, a good job to date of, um, you know, kind of taking those, you know, those away. We still are sitting in an environment of, of peak earnings. And for me, that's, you know, you look at how far above trend EPS is, uh, and that still represents a pretty, you know, pretty important risk. I do think that as we go into 2023, we'll find that those numbers will come down, you know, pretty substantially. Um, and it's not, you know, it's not an environment yet that supports valuation expansion. Um, and so you kind of just, you do the simple math of, you know, a more reasonable valuation on a lower EPS number in 2023. And you can kind of get to, you know, kind of measures of quote unquote fair value that are closer to, you know, 3,000, 3,200 on, on S&P 500. So I view that as being, you know, kind of path of least resistance uh, and the idea of that, you know, we'll, we will have periodic rallies or counter trend rallies because sentiment is, you know, more, you know, compressed than where we started the year and positioning is in a different place. And, and obviously everybody, you know, this is why the pain trade is never really, you know, higher, right? I mean, everybody would much prefer if we had a market that was moving up and to the right. Uh, and so, you know, that, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll flirt with that, but I think it's a trading environment that still is a one step forward, two steps back, or if you want to call it, you know, kind of sell rallies, you know, mentality. I think that we're still very much there until we either see one of two things happen. Either you have um, the Fed makes a clear definitive pivot, you know, pivot is, is in my mind is not necessarily a pause. A pivot is, you know, a change in direction or a change in attitude. Um, or you have um, various growth leading indicators show uh, a more definitive bottom and, and starting to turn up. Yeah. Now, I think that this is a not mutually exclusive relationship and that it's more likely that the Fed pivots in response to growth indicators moving lower uh, and therefore, you know, uh, the, the narrative shifts away from, you know, inflation and more towards, you know, growth and, and, the, and you know, and that becomes more the focus. Um, but those are things that that I'm looking for on the sector front. I, I think, unfortunately, the story is is um, is very much the same, which is to stay as defensive as you can within your equity allocation. So if you're if you're required to, you know, be a fully invested equity investor. I mean, you want to, you know, you want to favor cash flows that have a really low beta and, you know, um, you know, reduce cyclicality um, that will, you know, continue to be an issue. And I think increasingly you want to um, obviously balance sheet leverage, I think will increasingly be a problem given uh, level of rates uh, and the, you know, the change in the cost of capital. Um, it's, it's certainly become more complicated and harder. I mean, even the energy sector in the last few months is no longer, you know, a source of, you know, kind of the consistent, you know, returns that it was in the first you know, three or four months of the year. So I, I think those are all that's all part of a transition, all part of a phase of, of what has to happen in a market uh, for it to really have the you know, kind of the proper you know, capitulation um, that we'll have to see before we can have a, a durable up move. Before I ask you some questions on the sectors, can I ask you? to do the simple math for us when it comes to 3,000, 3,200, S&P 500 uh, base case, or at least path of least resistance for 2023? 
Yeah, so I would say like for 2023, I, I see a number that's sort of closer to $200 on, on S&P 500 EPS. I think consensus right now is around 240. Wow. Um, or maybe you know, it's probably come down a little bit. Um, $200, you know, kind of gets you your, you know, roughly, you know, 15% below 2022. It sort of, it lines up with the the kind of surprise that you would see um, when we have the, you know, ISM PMI cycle Um it's it's pretty consistent with the idea that you know we're running 25% above trend and so um an EPS number that you know kind of falls back to to trend um and i think if we were to look at the um the impact or the cost associated with both the combination of you know rising rates or the discount rate coupled with a pretty sharp increase in energy costs or input costs for for companies these are the these are the types of preconditions that that exist before you have a more meaningful growth slowdown. So I think that's pretty consistent. I mean, 15 times that number, 16 times that number, whatever, plus or minus is is kind of how you how you get there. Um, I think that those, you know, those are reasonable valuations given, you know, quality of index, you know, how some things have changed in, in the composition of the S&P 500, um, but also, you know, probably represent um you know, you know, a more kind of stable, you know, kind of average valuation versus a what presumably will be a, a trough or near trough EPS number. And now I have to ask a question about the trough and bear market, because you have done quite some uh, statistical historical analysis on bear markets and bear market rallies. And I know you have quite a strong opinion on when historically has the market troughed, both on a combination, let's say, of EPS downgrades and valuations. So when is that moment where you feel, at least looking at history, it's statistically significant to say we might be near the trough? This is actually an area where I, w- I do want to do a little bit more work. And so one of the things that, that I, w- I want to study in a little bit more detail is, you know, kind of what happened, let's call it like sort of pre-1990 troughs or pre-1985 troughs versus post. Yeah. But on average and, and, and reasonably consistently, I think you find that um, the market tends to bottom, you know, kind of six to nine months um, before EPS bottoms. Okay. So, uh, and in, and I think EPS will bottom, um, you know, probably third quarter of 2023. That's my, that's my current sort of best guess. So yeah. if I think about when the market price can bottom, I would say that that window opens, um, sometime after October, November this year, and sort of extends into the first quarter of next year, recognizing that, you know, I'm giving sort of average, duration of of sure. the lead you know but it can it can range anywhere from you know 6 to to 12 months but is you know, is been reasonably consistent around that you know kind of 9 month you know time frame so that that's to me that's when the window opens um in the context of 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 how i see you know the the picture that i see today um i don't know that i i don't know that i really have a strong view or the or the case to suggest that this will be a quote unquote bear market that you know that that should last for more than you know twelve to eighteen months. I mean, we we don't necessarily have, um, well, be careful. I guess you know how how I frame this. I, I don't know that we have structural issues as much as we sort of went through a, a pretty significant shock, and we're digesting that shock and and all of its um, ramifications. Um, and that obviously is I you know probably still to be to 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 be debated. Um, but also remember, like a bear market bottom doesn't necessarily mean that you have to make new highs. Yeah. It just might mean that you 
um, you're no, you're you're sort of no longer falling, or the trend in the market has it starts to flatten out, and maybe can be an uptrend. It doesn't mean that you have to you'll have a 45 degree you know angle uh, to the market. Mr. Blonde, for people who don't know you yet, I don't know how that's possible, but assume there will be people. Where can they find more of your work? Sure. Well, yeah, you, I think you highlighted at the outset, but I mean, I think um, Twitter is a, is a great place to start. Um, I try to, you know, to be uh, topical uh, and, uh, you know, on, on ideas there. It's at Mr. Blonde underscore macro. Uh, and then the, the place to, you know, to find a little bit more detail and, and studies and, um, and, and written work is at Substack. Stuck in the middle at Substack um, is where you can kind of find um, a little bit more thought behind the charts. Yeah, both the Twitter account of Mr. Blonde and Stuck in the Middle, his Substack newsletter are excellent. Free content. There's nothing best we can ask for. Uh, thanks for being here, Mr. Blonde. And I'll uh, check out with you in the next two to three months to talk about the S&P at 3200 then. <laughs> yeah. yeah, thank you. It was great to be here. I, I appreciate the, um, the always strong and pointed questions. Thanks. Talk to you soon.